scripture passage this morning is from the book of Daniel, <clears throat> chapter 9. Uh, we're doing a part two, actually, in Daniel chapter 9. So really, we're looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 27. But this morning, I'm going to be reading verses 20 through 27 in particular. Daniel chapter 9, 20 through 27. The passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would certainly encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And I'll just warn you, the intro to this message after you read the text will be awfully dark, um, but my prayer is that it will accentuate the light that we end with, and that you will leave here both uh, challenged and really encouraged in Christ Jesus. So we'll see what happens. If you are um, able to stand, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. The beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God of grace, would you give us the grace we need, as was just talked about earlier, to try to care well for schools around us and to mentor well and to press on in that ministry. Thank you for those who are serving and will serve this year. Um, We're so thankful for them. And we pray for the teachers and the students, Lord, a blessing upon them, many of whom are in very difficult circumstances. And Lord, give us the grace we need to really understand this text, especially the main things, Lord. I pray that these would be these would just be sunk deep into our hearts and that we would walk out of here a changed people. Holy Spirit, would you do that? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was reading an article this week in the New York Times magazine. I guess because I'm an old soul. I don't know. I don't read it every morning, okay? I read it just the right amount. I was reading the New York Times magazine about an extended family who is dealing with a genetic mutation that causes something called frontotemporal dementia, 
or FTD, which is a kind of early onset dementia in which symptoms typically present themselves kind of when you're middle age, often around 40 years old. And the decline occurs steadily, yet rather gradually you can easily live with FTD once the symptoms start presenting themselves for 20 to 30 years. If one of your parents has this genetic mutation, you have a 50% chance of having the same mutation, which will eventually cause FTD. Testing is an option, meaning that if one of your parents has a mutation, you can do a blood draw. You can find out if you also have the mutation and will eventually get FTD. But of course, a lot of people decide not to be tested, feeling as though it would be impossible to function well in this world if they knew that FTD would be part of their story one day. It is very hard for me to imagine a more unsettling mixture of what we might call uncertain certainty, which compounds the darkness this family is experiencing like 1,000%. The parents at the top of the family tree in this article had nine kids, and then the mom developed FTD, and then the mutation was eventually discovered. So now you can expect that probably four or five of their kids will have this mutation, although you don't know which ones. And if you're one of the kids and you choose to get tested and you find out that you have it, you still don't know when the symptoms are going to present themselves. And every time you, know, you misplace your car keys or whatever, you're going to journey through this mental maze of, of what ifs. Is this the beginning? And if you don't have it, you still know that you're going to end up spending a significant part of your life caring for family members who do have it. And if you decide not to get tested, you know that you'll walk through one of those doors at some point. You just don't know which door, and you don't know when. This is an extreme example, of course. Most of us are not living in an arrangement that is quite this difficult. And I do think that dementia is one of the most painful things for you and the people around you to journey through. But at the same time, maybe we're living in an arrangement that's more similar to those circumstances than we want to think. At least by worldly standards, some of us in this room will live rather charmed lives, and some of us will definitely not. We just don't know who, and we don't know the when. And eventually, all of us will decline and die, and along the way, we're going to care for those around us who are declining and dying, and a lot of you know that very acutely. We hate thinking about things like this, here in the West in particular. Maybe more than any other society in the history of the world. Regardless, though, uncertain certainty, this, this guarantee, we might say, of forthcoming difficulties without all of the wins and the what's, it lingers and it, it nags us despite our best attempts at suppression. Perhaps those of us who are living kind of charmed lives might find it possible to be blissfully disaffected by all of this, kind of this like, you know, K-Sara-Sara approach. 
But for those of us who find ourselves in seasons of darkness right now, this kind of uncertain certainty tends to be absolutely suffocating. We simply don't know when things will change for the better or if they will ever change for the better on this side of heaven or shoot, if things might actually get a whole lot worse. And all of us know regardless, even if we don't like to think about it, that death comes for all. This morning we are picking up where we left off last week, part two of our meditations, in Daniel chapter 9 concerning what it looks like to commune with God in the dark. Last week we talked about prayer in the dark, and then we made a few brief comments about our confidence in the dark. This week we'll continue the discussion concerning our confidence in the dark, and then we'll talk about our hope in the dark. And this hope layer, in particular, will help us understand how to commune with God in darkness that's compounded by this uncertain certainty. So here we go with two reflections this morning, confidence in the dark, hope in the dark, and let's start with that first reflection, which, if we're tracking with last week, is really our second reflection. It's difficult, but I know you can do the math. Last week we discussed that in 539 B.C., in accordance with all sorts of biblical prophecy and the dreams and the visions that we've already unpacked here in the book of Daniel, the great kingdom of Babylon fell to the Persians. In the first year of King Darius, the Medo-Persians reigned over the former Babylon. See Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of his reign, once Babylon had fallen to the Persians, Daniel was doing some reading, some devotions, he was doing some quiet times, whatever you want to call it, in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And these are the writings now contained in the biblical book we simply call Jeremiah, probably Jeremiah chapter 25. And as he did these readings, he realized, hey, if I'm reading this correctly and making sense of the math, this 70-year season of exile that we've been in, the desolations of Jerusalem should be coming to an end. So Daniel prayed as we saw last week in verses 3 through 19. Because that is what you do when you've been living in the dark for decades, basically, in Daniel's case, for his entire life. You ground yourself in God's word, and then you pray responsively. And here's how Daniel prayed. He approached God with humility and sackcloth and ashes. He centered and celebrated God's covenant-keeping greatness. He confessed all of Israel's sin. He acknowledged God's justice in pouring out his wrath upon Israel. He cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness, and he grounded his plea to the Lord for restoration, restoration involving most specifically uh, the Israelites returning to their land and the restoration of the temple. He grounded that plea for restoration and the glorification of God's name. And then, after we looked at that, we began to look at God's response to Daniel's prayer. A response, church, that gives us so much confidence in the dark. We're confident because as Daniel was still praying, do you see this? We saw that God ministered to him through the angel Gabriel, verses 20 and 21. And Gabriel told Daniel, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning, 
at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word one out, that is a word from God. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, that is, by God. Therefore, consider the words and understand the vision. God responded to Daniel's pleas because God loves his people and he keeps his promises. Promises that Daniel keyed in on throughout his prayer. Or to put this another way, God's merciful response to Daniel had a lot to do with God, not so much Daniel. And my goodness, when you are, when you are in the dark, that set of circumstances is, is quite the warm hug. At least it should be. You are glad to hear that God's response to your pleas is more about him and less about you. You know, in the darkness, here's what happens when we're in the darkness. A lot of us will turn, we might turn to some sort of generalized spirituality, which is often this, this fairly individualistic search for spiritual experiences, often with an Eastern hue these days. It's a search for spiritual experiences, but without the baggage of really having to submit to any sort of external authority or have any obligations to a community. Or we might turn to practices of self-improvement and self-discipline. We might turn to leisure, to alcohol, drugs, anything that might anesthetize our pain. Notice, though, that in every one of those cases I just described, the impetus for beating back the darkness is on us. We have to somehow discover the right mixture of spiritual experiences. We have to be disciplined enough. We have to go not just on weekend trips, but on on the right weekend trip. So when you get on social media, you're not seeing that someone else went on a better weekend trip than you did. There is a lot of pressure if you go any of these routes on you when you're in the dark. At least I think so. And it doesn't work. This is one of the reasons why you hear about people going on so many once-in-a-lifetime trips. It's because the other once-in-a-lifetime trip didn't work. It didn't have the same power that you anticipated. Christianity offers something entirely different. Christianity offers us a God who responds with mercy and loving kindness to his people when they're crying out to him in the dark. Not because they've earned themselves that love or, or disciplined themselves sufficiently or prayed a weighty enough prayer, but simply because he loves them. Your external circumstances might not change all that quickly. But you can rest assured that God hears you and he responds to the cries of his people. A more kind, a more positive kind, you might say, of, un, of uncertain certainty, if you will. And as God responds, he loves to respond by means of his presence in particular. Notice that the Lord sent Gabriel. Did you see this in the text? The Lord sent Gabriel to minister to Daniel personally before Daniel was even done praying. 
And you know, as I was reading this, it makes me, made me think of this really kind father or really kind mother who wraps their arms around a crying child in the middle of the night. The darkness itself might persist for a long time. If it's at 2 a.m., you've got four hours to go. But the parents' responsive and very compassionate presence changes everything. And the thing about God is that he never sleeps. After he attends to your needs, he doesn't go back to bed like earthly parents do. He doesn't hit the sack when you settle down. He remains ever active, working on behalf of his children. Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he, that is God, who keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. Or as Victor Hugo put it fairly famously, or Ugo if you're French, he said this, he said, Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Some of us have live, love, laugh, whatever it is, plastered above our beds, which is fine. You know what would be better? Go to sleep in peace. God is awake. But God didn't just, just respond to Daniel with a hug. He responded with a word that apparently went out, by the way, at the beginning of Daniel's pleas for mercy. Verse 23, Daniel had barely gotten a word of prayer out, and God was like, yep, I'm putting things into motion. And at, at risk of kind of overusing, you might say, the kid example here, you're ready to present this 10-point argument to your parents concerning why it is that you get this new bicycle, why you deserve it. And then your parent, as you begin the argument, says, hey, hey, stop right there. We already made a purchase online. It'll be here tomorrow. You can give me the presentation if you want. But it's on its way. Because the desire of these parents to get the kid the bicycle isn't really about the strength of the kid's presentation. It's about their love for their children as their parents. Love that, that simply is, not something that's tethered to your performance or whatever. The way that Daniel prayed certainly mattered. It's not irrelevant. We talked about that last week. But even, church, even when our prayers are, are frankly pathetic, God stands ready to listen and to respond. Now let's go ahead and press finally into the vision in verses 24 through 27. The details, now we're getting the details of this word that went out, which gives us more insight, both concerning the foundation for the confidence we've been discussing, as well as now the hope beyond that confidence, which is our second reflection this morning. This is a very complicated vision. Many of the details, especially the timing and the who's, are, I mean, hotly debated, with a capital H in part because the Hebrew here is pretty rigid and it's difficult to translate and make sense of. But I would argue, despite all of that, 
I would argue, and this is really important, that the overarching message behind the vision is clear. Daniel, I have heard your pleas for restoration in accordance with the promises I've made to my people. And the restoration that you are praying for is on its way. In fact, the restoration I have in mind will ultimately exceed your grandest expectations. But all of this is going to take a bit longer than you'd imagine or prefer. And it's going to be a mighty difficult journey. How's that for some uncertain certainty? <laughs> a certain outcome is in store for God's people, but the getting there is going to involve all kinds of twists and turns and uncertainties. The extended timeline. For the restoration, it can be seen in the, the 70 weeks or the 77s language in verse 24. Those 77s, probably the fairest way to translate this, 77s, are then broken into three stages, as you can see in verses 26 and 27. Seven sevens, and then 62 sevens, and one seven, which itself is divided into halves. Three stages amounting to three eras all orchestrated by God, and it's going to be a minute. Especially when you consider that the entire exile was 170, and now we're talking about a schematic involving 77. And the grandeur of the restoration that God has in mind can be seen in several places. Verse 24 speaks of putting an end to sin. Excuse me? God has done all sorts of of restorative things in Israel's past. I mean, including the exodus from Egypt that Daniel references in this very prayer. But none of those acts involved the end of sin. And God will be anointing a most holy place, which could simply refer to the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. But in light of the reference to the end of sin and everlasting righteousness and so forth, it has a more dramatic and expansive flair to it that points beyond the confines of a physical temple. Verse 25 prophesies the eventual arrival of an anointed one, a prince. The Hebrew underneath the word anointed one being the derivative of the word Messiah. And then see the beginning of verse 26, probably the apex of all of this to some degree. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. It's hard to read verse 26 without seeing Jesus in the crucifixion, now that we know about Jesus in the crucifixion. There are other ways to read it, but in my view they aren't the best or the most natural readings of this text. And then the rest of verse 26 and verse 27 speak of a war and flood and destruction and desolation possibly occurring right after the cutting off of the Messiah, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or referring farther into the future to the end of the days. Here's, here's maybe a, a broad way, we might say, to assemble these stages in our minds, although there are are other reasonable ways to piece through this as well. But here's, a, I think, a helpful 
a broad way to do this. The first stage, seven sevens, may be referring to the rebuilding of the temple set in motion by this divine word backed up by King Cyrus's decree that Israelite exiles could return to Jerusalem. The second stage, the 70, the, excuse me, the 62 sevens, subsequently may well refer to the very fraught times that the Jewish people experienced up until the coming of Christ and eventually his crucifixion, the anointed, the anointed one being, being cut off after the 62 sevens, beginning of verse 26. And these difficulties involved all kinds of harassment from various opponents. We got into this a bit two summers ago in our series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it probably included the massacre at the hands of Antiochus IV. The third phase, the final seven, comes after that. The details, I'm saying this in all humility, the, the details of which are, in my view, extremely difficult to pin down. An exhaustive look at the why, kind of why this is all very difficult to pin down, those details would be a better subject for an extended lecture of sorts, and we might do that at some point. So for now, since we're preaching this morning and we don't have four hours to walk through all of this, so for now, here are some, some bite-sized nuggets that we can chew on for now. Fried nuggets, because everybody's dying. I'm seeing these grilled nuggets out here. These are fried nuggets this morning. Two bite-sized nuggets. Nugget number one. With regard to nuggets why this is so complicated, with regard to the people of the prince who is to come, mentioned later in verse 26, that prince could be a different person than the anointed one referred to earlier in the same verse, meaning that this, this prince might be a military leader involved in the destruction of Jerusalem or even the Antichrist. Or it could be a separate reference to the same anointed one, which, given what we said earlier, would make this prince another reference to the Messiah. In my view, intelligent people who love Jesus and love God's word make very compelling cases for each option here, although each option has difficulties as well. And here's the rub. These two options require very different interpretations of the accompanying details at the end of verse 26 and into verse 27. For example, the nature of this covenant that's described in verse 27. Good luck to you. Nugget number two, second thing that makes this passage really difficult. With regard to the three stages of sevens that we've just been discussing, those stages could be literal expanses of time that can be mapped across history. And if that's the case, check this out. If that's the case, the word weeks, which we said is most fairly translated sevens, probably refers to years. So we're potentially talking about a 490-year expanse of time. Go sit on a high hill and sort that out. And for example, this text is where the idea of a seven-year period of tribulation comes from, if you're familiar with that idea. Or those stages could be largely symbolic, 
referring more to a general schematic than something that can be mapped precisely on history. In my view, you can probably see where this is going. In my view, intelligent people who love Jesus and love God's word make very compelling cases for each option, although each option has difficulties as well. Good luck to you. If you take a deep dive into all of this, it will certainly be profitable. Just because it's hard does not mean we should just be whatever. I think you should look into this. I think you should try to land somewhere. But we'll also give you some night sweats. I just want you to know. Church, when interpretive difficulties like this arise among serious Christians who love Jesus and commit themselves to the authority of God's word, how should we respond? I mean, we could panic. We could descend into this sort of existential crisis that crushes our confidence in God's word. That's one option. Or uh, we could fiercely promote our views on Twitter or, or YouTube and hopefully build a really large and powerful following that kind of crushes the other side. Or hear me out on this now. We could approach texts like this with a lot of humility, studying them seriously, and then taking positions on these matters while simultaneously being gracious to those who disagree with us, and even highlighting aspects of their positions that are admittedly pretty intriguing. And just as importantly, when we run into interpretive difficulties like this, we can commit ourselves, church, by God's grace, to please not missing the forest for the trees. And church, here's the forest. Whatever happens, and this is where the preaching starts. I know we just have a few minutes left here, but whatever happens in phase three, we can be certain that all of it eventually culminates in verse 24, the finishing of the transgression putting an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, the dawn of everlasting righteousness, the sealing of vision and profit, anointing a most holy place. And we can be certain that the culmination of these events must be related to the cut-off Messiah. Because all of this was clearly beyond Israel's own reach. And it is clearly church beyond our reach. So sure, let's, let's wrestle with the details of this text. I think it is worthwhile to do so and to try to land somewhere, and you will learn a lot along the way. But regardless, I hope that we can agree that there's plenty of uncertain certainty to go around here. We just don't know precisely how much of each. God was making it clear that the journey to restoration was going to be long and winding, filled with all sorts of trials. And even those who believe there's enough evidence to map out a bunch of specifics realize there were still plenty of blanks for Daniel. God was making it clear that restoration was going to go far beyond land and temple, restoration involving the end of sin, which means Whatever temple restoration God has in mind must be different than the original temple because the end of sin means the end of sacrifices, which was quite the major point of having a temple 
in the first place? Did Daniel have enough information to know exactly what all of this would look like? No. But despite that uncertainty, he certainly knew that restoration was coming. And that it was going to be rather spectacular. He did know that. In fact, and we'll end basically with this reflection, I think that there's room within all of the views concerning the details we've been discussing in verses 24 through 27 to see an illusion in this 490 mass, 70 times 7, to jubilee, which was a practice spelled out for the Israelites in the law. And here's a description of jubilee in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. Listen to this. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be given you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap, but grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, and it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Jubilee was for liberty and for restoration and abundance. It was this, this grand resetting of sorts that was particularly advantageous to those who were in difficult circumstances, economic, and otherwise. If you were in dire straits, Jubilee was especially for you. And doesn't it make a whole lot of sense to say that the circumstances of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 are this even greater Jubilee a 490-year, or we might, it's actually fair to say, a tenfold jubilee. Freedom from debt slavery is one thing. Freedom from sin is quite another, isn't it? Regaining your property is one thing. Gaining eternal righteousness in a land that is itself the most holy place is quite another. Notice that the very existence of Jubilee guarantees hardships beforehand. Trials of all sorts, of all sorts and all kinds of uncertainty, thus the need for Jubilee. But it points forward to the glorious end of those difficulties as well. There will certainly be uncertainty along the way. But then the uncertainty will certainly end. Jubilee means restoration is coming, but it's going to be a bummer in some ways beforehand. Church, do you see how the redemptive storyline spelled out for us in Scripture is quite the hopeful balm for people who are living in darkness? Especially those of us coming to terms with the uncertain Certainty of life that regardless of how well we position ourselves for success, 
inevitably declines, and then death are either here or they are coming. We just don't know when, and we don't know what it's going to look like. I want you to know that Scripture accounts for all of that. It predicts all of that, which should be comfort for those of us who are in the blender right now. However, it also predicts jubilee for God's people, the restoration of all that's been lost, the making right of everything that was wrong on account of the Messiah, the one we now know as Jesus Christ. But you know, this, that's what's missing in the New York Times Magazine story, which is about as bleak as you can possibly get. There's no hope at the end at all. What's missing is the next untold chapter, the certain ending for the people of God. I love the description in Isaiah chapter 65 concerning this coming chapter, this jubilee. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then verse 20, check this out. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For those who are not following Christ, I want you to understand that Jesus is not asking you to go be a spiritual giant. He's asking you to come to him in repentance, in sackcloth and ashes, on the ground that he might restore us. And he wants you to know that you're in for a lifetime of uncertain certainty, all kinds of trials and difficulties and death but then jubilee, and he will be present with you along the way. And for those of you who are following Christ, I'll just end with this one consideration. I teased it in the second service last week. I shouldn't have done that. I stole thunder. If you were in the second service, you already heard this. I want you to remember that part of Jesus' ministry of presence with you is intercession, is praying for you. Daniel prayed for his people in verses 3 through 19. But he was a human being who had to go to sleep. Jesus is praying for you all the time. On your behalf, before the Father, and he does not sleep. Sometimes I would come out of my room in the high school really early in the morning, and my dad would be there already, and he'd be like, yeah, you know, I already worked out and uh, had quiet time, and I prayed for you. I was like, what, did you even sleep? Like, it's, you know, 6.15 in the morning. And it's like, no, you slept, because I remember you going to bed at 8.45, uh, the previous night, and I gave you a really hard time for that. So he did sleep. God doesn't sleep. And his son, Jesus Christ, is interceding for you on your behalf. That's part of his ministry of presence. Daniel prayed for all Israel. Jesus prays for all of God's people across all of history. Amen.